I'm Nancy Allen, and you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal pod plan. Oh, <laughs> this could take a while. This could take a while. We I should have been time. rehearsing this. So, okay, I'm Nancy Allen, and you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. Gilbert, you eat shit. <laughs> He's easily pleased. You are a very sick person. I hate to tell you. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a novelist, playwright, occasional producer, and greatly admired screenwriter and film director, whose work includes some of the most memorable comedies of the last 50 years. He's written four novels, The Big Kiss-Off of 1944, Hollywood and Levine, Tender is Levine, and Sleepless Nights. He's also written for the stage, including the critically acclaimed Broadway play Social Security, which was directed by Mike Nichols, and the book, for the Broadway musical version of his film, Honeymoon in Vegas. Screenwriting credits include Soap Dish, Oh God, You Devil, The Scout, and the original Fletch, as well as classic comedy that Frank and I talk about frequently on this very podcast, The In-Laws. He's also directed the features Honeymoon in Vegas, So Fine, It Could Happen to You, Striptease, Isn't She Great, and The Freshman, starring former podcast guest Matthew Broderick. And last but never least, he was one of the screenwriters of a movie based on his original story, which also happens to be one of the funniest movies ever committed to celluloid, the Mel Brooks-directed Blazing Saddles. In a career spanning five decades, he's worked with some of the entertainment industry's most notable performers, including Richard Pryor, Alan Arkin, Madeline Kahn, John Cleese, and Bankrupt, James Kahn, Bette Midler, Gene Wilder, Burt Reynolds, George Burns, and Marlon Brando. Please welcome to the podcast an artist of numerous talents and the man who gave the world the catchphrase, Serpentine. The pride of Corona Queens, 
Andrew Bergman. Sounds like it should be a fight introduction. Pride of Corona <laughs> Queens. I should be coming in a, a white trunks and 135 pants. <laughs> Welcome, Andrew. Nice to be here. Thanks for now, doing this. Now, the reason we wanted you on the show, <laughs> and and that's what all of our fans are demanding to know. Why? Yeah. You worked with Marlon Brando and Richard Pryor. And so are you aware that Marlon Brando... Fucked Richard Pryor in the ass. I, I, why, you know the details of, of their, their <laughs> well, sexual according, moment? According I have no idea. First of all, obviously I had no idea of any of this uh, when I worked with either of them. You heard Quincy Jones, though, say this. I they did had a, hear a that. Relationship. I was quite uh, taken by that. But when you were working with Brando, did, did he, he say, you know, that night with Richie? No, he did <laughs> yeah. not. One one time I fucked yeah, yeah, Richard yeah. Pryor in the ass. He this, never said that. This never is his idea up. of an icebreaker, yeah. Andrew. <laughs> well, listen. <laughs> We're all grown-ups, right? We're adults. And no, he didn't. It's quite a story. But I can't say anything that he would do would completely shock me. No. Either yeah. of them. Yeah. Because yeah. 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 Quincy Jones said they were both coked up. And, uh, well, you heard the whole thing. And He's, Richard Pryor told you personally, <laughs> you know, Marlon Brando fucked me in the ass. He never said uh, that. No. You know, uh, Richard Donner was here. He worked with both of them. And he asked him the same question. But at least he, he waited till about 40 minutes into that one. Let him, that's your ice, that's he, your ice break. He let him loosen up. He let him get comfortable. Rolls right off my back. Yeah. <laughs> but you, have, you do have some great Brando stories. Things that actually did happen. Yes. Yeah. And we were talking about one outside when you went to, you and your, your producing partner flew, right. flew to Tahiti to meet with him about the freshman. That was quite uh, yeah. remarkable. You yeah. know, we'd, uh, you want to hear this entire endless backstory? No. Yeah. It's, well, so, yeah, yeah. It, it's great. Well, he had, he had, re, he, he had been an in-laws fan, mm-hmm. which I was aware of, because he called me out of the blue one day, and, uh, and I thought it was a prank call, but it wasn't. It was him. And he wanted he had he was going to do a movie with uh, Michael Jackson. Not since we're now on the right, that's timely too. Perversions <laughs> around the world. Nice segue. Uh, yeah. So as long as we're in that arena, <laughs> he was going to do a movie with Michael Jackson. It sounded like a, something that could never possibly happen. Um, but I knew. So I said, "Well, that's interesting." But I knew he knew my work. So when I did, wrote the freshman. We sent him a script, and he read it, like, overnight, which was amazing. And and, and what was the story going to be with uh, Brando and Michael Jackson? He, one of them was going to play God, and the other one was playing the devil. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who and what. And I called Scorsese. I said, is this thing really happening? He said, well, I'm not. You know, he sort of fumped for it, so I, I knew it was a, yeah. a non-starter. <laughs> it was such a hopeless idea. And given the personalities, you knew... <laughs> uh, it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so anyhow, he says, we should talk about, I sent him the script. He said, let's talk about it. I said, well, I'm going to fly out. I'll come to L.A. tomorrow. He said, no, no, let's, let's meet in Tahiti. I'm going to be in Tahiti. Now, he really didn't like Tahiti that much. But he wanted, it was this whole kind sure. of Lord Jim, you know, this, this, this mystique. So we flew, flew to uh, Tahiti to meet with him. And he was enormous. Uh, and it was quite an amazing five days. 
What was the thing that you 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 were on the plane and you saw well, this that large? Was the thing. <laughs> we were flying in. You, you fly to Papet, the capital, and then you take this puddle jumper the next morning uh-huh. to his own island. It's a gorgeous island, and we're flying in, and I I see this what appears to be a, a, a woman with blonde hair, but weighed about three hundred pounds. And my producing partner said, "Who the hell is that?" I said, "I think that's him." <laughs> <laughs> he dyed his hair for some. Some movie he had done. Unbelievable. <laughs> and it was just remarkable. For four days, we talked about everything but the movie. And then finally, we started talking about the movie. Yeah. He, and, he, and this this I found fascinating, too, Gilbert. And you'll love this. He loved old Jewish stand-ups. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what I found. That was the secret. You know, he'd been sort of raised by the Adler family, Stella Adler. So he was into all this. He confessed oh. he loved Jackie Mason. Oh, he loved belt. Yeah, he loved the dumbest... Shittiest. Myron Cohen and all oh, those guys. All of them. Yeah. You know. <laughs> That's great. Morty Gunty. It was all right up his alley. I love it. <laughs> so I it just, Morty Gunty. Yeah. Marlon Brando's a Morty Gunty fan. <laughs> he had a weakness for Norm those, Crosby. those jokes. Yeah. Jackie those, Vernon. Those, oh, yeah. Jackie Vernon. Yeah. God. We bring yeah. him up on this show. Yeah. That's great. And he tested you by asking you what your no, favorite he comedy would say, was? I, you know, I was, he's not naturally a comic presence on no. screen. And I wanted to keep him sort of loosey-goosey. And I had told him this joke at some point. That, you know, the, the two guys who cross Collins Avenue, Abe and Saul, and Abe gets hit by a car. And Saul says, are you comfortable? And Abe says, I make a living. He loved that. He thought it was the funniest <laughs> thing. So he'd be working and he'd say, what was that, what was that one again? The two gentlemen, they're crossing the street and what are they? I said, you know, I give him the joke and he'd start laughing and go, go do the take. The other thing, I had this habit of eating bazooka bubblegum when I was shooting as a nervous habit. Uh-huh. And he said, what are you chewing? I said, bazooka bubblegum. Because, you know, can I have one? I said, this is how you direct the greatest actor in the world. I said, you, if I get a great take, I'm giving you a piece of gum. Just like, it's like the Ed Sullivan with a, a chimp on a, on a motorcycle, you know? So, so he does his take. Of course, he nails it. He walks over with his hand outstretched. <laughs> fantastic. Like, fantastic. Unbelievable. <laughs> Oh, it's rewarding and rewarding it. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> what was the thing about the calls? The phone calls that you had to you had to work out a code? Yes. Well, you know, Marlon had like nine phones in his house, none of which he ever answered. <laughs> he would take messages on one of them. He said, Well, how are we going to communicate? He said, Well, I have to give you a code. If you notice that dealing with the, you know, the CIA dealing with, with Marlon. He said, what kind of sandwich do you like? I said, well, tuna fish. I said, all right. If you want to leave a message, say, it's tuna fish one. <laughs> you want to return tuna fish two. If it's very important, tuna fish three. And if it's life-threatening, tuna fish four, but never use tuna fish four. I said. It's like DEFCON. DEFCON, absolutely. This is like nuclear attack. So I said, I hope I never get to three. <laughs> so I'm up in... Uh, in the, the Berkshires, summering, and uh, I let a couple of weeks pass because I know what he's doing. He's showing the script to people he knows and getting their kibitzing with them. So I wait a week and I leave him a tuna fish. <laughs> That's it, leave it and walk away. Two weeks later, a week later, tuna fish two. Now I start going by decimals. I leave him a, a tuna fish 2.2 because I don't even want to get to three. A tuna fish 2.8. Then he calls me. Well, 
we should really get together and talk. I said, fine. And that's when he said, let's come to Tahiti. Yeah, it's great. Bananas. At what point did he say, I have to play this like Don Corleone and because on, they're on, only going to accept me as... Yeah, on, on, um, when we were in, in Tahiti, he said, you know, I can't play just a gumba. I can't play another guy. Right. They they expect... Of course. I didn't really think they did, but hell, to get him in the movie, I said, fine. Of course. So I had to figure out, how could I do some non-libelous way to have him appropriate that character? So I thought, well, you're the real guy. You're the one they based Don Corleone on. And that's how he said that. That works for everybody. I love and, that. And he hated Tahiti? He didn't like it that much. <laughs> what, he was making Muni on the Bounty or something, and he bought a bunch of those he islands for, for Trump change? 250. 250 250,000 bucks. And it's a beautiful place. Wow. But he liked the feeling of... He liked being Marlon Brando in Tahiti. You yeah. Know? I mean, I think that was, that was the thing of it. I mean, I think basically he was sort of bored shitless there, you know. <laughs> he liked, and he knew everything about it. He knew everything about it. the ornithology. The you know. Well, he was a learned guy. I mean, he was he a guy. Was, he was a guy who was interested in everything. Well, here's the thing. He knew if he picked up the phone, he'd get anybody in the world to talk to him. You know, he's Marlon Brando. Sure. So he would, he would, if he was interested in something, he would call like the expert. At UCLA. Wow. Mr. Brand would like to have dinner has to discuss, you know, migrations of, of, <laughs> of um, seabirds. <laughs> and then show up. He'd get the five smartest people in the world, and he'd pick their brains. Imagine, you know? imagine having like that king, access. King of the world. Yeah. You know? Now, did he also, I, I mean, I heard, especially later in his career, he would just do things... To fuck with movie makers just because he could. Oh, he always did. He yeah. would torture producers mercilessly. He once, I mean, he <laughs> he called uh, Mike LaBelle, the producer of, of the movie, um, and it sounded like he was in an airplane. And he told Mike that he was actually flying to Tahiti for the weekend. He borrowed Frank Sinatra's plane, <clears throat> but he'll be back Monday. And the producer goes like, had a breakdown as you know if this guy leaves one of the never come back back on the halfway through the picture but he just was in his hotel in toronto you know working these machines that made it sound like uh he was in some pressurized cabin it's fantastic yeah <laughs> want to come back we'll come back to the freshman too because there's a lot to unpack there but i want to just go back because there's a connection here uh and asking you about growing up in queen's we like to get local boys sure. on the show. Gilbert's very excited when we have a Jewish guest, by the way. Are you, Aren't yes. you Gil? They're so rare in New York. Yeah, and they're so <laughs> rare in show business. <laughs> he keeps a tally. Jews in show business. Yeah. yeah. He keeps, but you grew up in Queens. I did. In Corona. Yeah. Darkest playing, Queens. Yes. Playing stickball in the street. All that. And I found this fascinating. I didn't know this about you in all the times I saw you interviewed, that your dad wrote gags for Victor Borga? My father was, my parents were German refugees. My father really had always wanted to be in the movie business. In fact, he worked wow. uh, for Universal Pictures in, in Berlin. The guy who founded Universal, Carl Lemley. Uncle Carl. Oh, yeah. Uncle Carl was yeah. from his hometown. No and kidding. in fact, Lemley wrote the affidavit that got my father out of Germany, which he did wow. for a lot of people. Oh, shit. That's yeah. great history. Yeah. Wow. Uh, he did that for a lot of people. He got a lot of people out of Lemley. He really did. So um, he was, you know, he, he he never got a chance to do it. He came over in 1937 when uh, right. it was not a, 
optimum time to find a job. He sold Fuller brushes, and then he went to work for the Daily News, translating uh, German broadcasts shortwave for the news desk. And he segued from there into the radio TV department, and he wrote uh, radio and TV you know, reviews and things. And then he started writing gags on this side, and he wrote for Borga. Right. Yeah. He wanted to be a comedy writer, or he just wanted to be a writer? He well, just wanted a writer, to... but he was, yeah. he was a very funny man. Yeah. Now, I know you were watching Bob and Ray, and you were watching all this stuff, and Gene Shepard, you I were knew a fan them. of... I knew Bob and Ray was... My father also oh. worked with Bob and Ray, who were fantastic. Oh. Fa- I used to watch them work. Oh. They were, my father worked for CBS Radio as a flack for a while, and they had a 15-minute show every night. He said, let's go. Let's we sat in the control room and watch us there, you know, with the sound effects guy and the whole thing. With <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, that was great. So great. Old radio. Beyond great. And they, they had him a note in front of them. They just knocked the stuff off. And it was so paralyzing. They were so funny. God, were they funny. So he was introducing you to this stuff oh, directly. And Kovacs. He was and the Kovacs. first critic in New York to write about Kovacs. Wow. Yeah. Your dad's name was Rudy? Rudy Bergman. Rudy Bergman. Looking and listening with Rudy Bergman. Wow. Daily News. Wow. So, so what was your first job in show business? My first job in show business, I got a PhD in American history, and I wrote this book. This book that's right here. We're yeah. in the money. Depression America and its yes. films. Fascinating read. And I couldn't get a teaching job because there were like 10 million PhDs at that mm-hmm. point because everybody had gone to graduate school to avoid going to Vietnam. That was, the, the, that was your choice. So I got a job as a flack at United Artists for a year because um, he knew my father knew various PR guys around town. And that was a fascinating job. I worked, I met Fellini and Truffaut and all these amazing people. You replaced Jonathan Demme? I replaced Jonathan Demme. Was, <laughs> was interesting similarly too. qualified to be <laughs> wow. a black as I was. Wow. <laughs> to, you know, yeah. no good nicks. Um, so I, and while I was doing that, I was writing this, this novella about a black sheriff in the Old West. Yeah, we we talked. We had Norman here, as you know, and we yeah. talked a little bit about the genesis of right, Blazing right. Saddles. Now, this could be bullshit, or I got bad information. Did 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 it somehow start with a poster of Jimi Hendrix on a horse? That was one thing. It's not. He was not wrong. Okay, I wrote. I had an idea back in. I was in graduate school at um, Wisconsin Madison in the sixties, which mm-hmm. was bananas mm-hmm. in those days. Um, and I loved Westerns. I remember seeing The Wild Bunch out there. I said, whoa, that's a movie. And I, I had, there was, there was a poster of, of Hendrix with a, with a, on a horse. I think I know that poster. It was a, a very famous yeah. poster. And I said, now there's something there. And I remember writing a letter to a friend of mine. I just had this idea of a town waiting for the new sheriff to show up in 1850. And it's Jimi Hendrix. What would that be? Right. And that was, that was, that was the, the little pearl in, 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 the, in the oyster's belly. Um, and that's that's what the idea. And the, did, it, did it did it morph into? Oh, it, he 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 might be more radicalized. He might be like an H. Rap Brown kind of it's character, just or Huey Newton. The kind way of, things happen when you start writing something, right? At least anything any good that I've written, it just takes off. Just a it's just a horse. An idea. You just you let him take you someplace. And and who were some of the actors they originally wanted? Well, there's only one actually, because Alan Arkin was going to direct the original My Tex X. I wrote a first draft. Was it a treatment now or a full screenplay at this First, point? First, there was this novella. A novella? Nobody knew who the hell I was. I okay. was going to write a treatment. I didn't even know how to write a treatment. Right. I didn't know how to write a script. Right. So I wrote this 90-page story, which was very flashy. It was, it was a good story. I still have it. And I sold it to Warner Brothers. 
and they commissioned the first draft, which I wrote, uh, with like the margins out to here. I didn't know, I didn't know the mm-hmm. form of anything. And they hired Arkin to direct it. And he went after James Earl Jones, and they realized that that wasn't going to work because you know, James Earl Jones was not really a comic no. presence. <laughs> Far <Yeah>. from. <laughs> um, so that fell apart. And then they called me and said, what do you think of Mel Brooks? I said, well, I mean, 2,000-year-old man was my Bible in college. You know, that's, who's funnier? Said, let's let's give it a shot. And you were twenty six. So what are you, how are you going to resist? I'm going to say no, 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 I can't do that. Right, right. And but they tried out a bunch of actors, or went after a few actors for the Gene Wilder part. Yeah, well, that was later. That was a really yeah. Once yeah. we started, um, the guy we really wanted was Johnny Carson. We sent the script to Johnny Carson, but well. That would be amazing. Wow. The Waco Kid, Johnny Carson. The Waco Kid, Johnny Carson. (laughs) It was like stunt casting, but fat. And he read it, and we were like waiting by the phone. It was like three Jews sitting by a phone waiting. It's it's like a date. Um, He finally said, I can't do this. I can't be an. I'm I'm Johnny. I just can't do this. Yeah. So we were crushed. So then we hired. he go for Dan Daly? Dan Daly, and that fell through. And then yeah. he hired Gig Young. Gig and Young. Gig Young yeah. is hired to play the Waco Kid. And the first day of shooting, he collapses in an alcoholic coma. He was, he was a serious uh, drinker. And that's the first day of shooting of Blazing Saddles. <laughs> this Gig Young collapsed on the floor. That was an auspicious beginning. Yeah. And then they said that uh, Brooks thought, what a great performance. Yeah, he thought, yeah, Hill said, wow, this guy's amazing. Until he, he realized he really was passing out. So awful. You know, so then he went to Gene, you know, right, of course. the producers, and uh, begged him. And Gene said, I'll do it if you do, if you if you'd make this other, this movie I'm interested in doing, which was Young Frankenstein. Wow. So that's how, that's how that transaction wow. began. And it's and of course now you watch the film and you can't He's think perfect. of anybody else because we thought you know it's going to be an older guy and Gene sure. was probably thirty five at the time but right. he, he was great well, perfect and drunk. you really believe those two guys loved each other well, which that, was the key to the success of that movie I think. While Gilbert tries to remember who our guest is and what your name, <laughs> a few words from our sponsor. <laughs> Kids, time to get back to Gilbert and Frank's amazing colossal podcast. So let's go. And you know, from making so many movies and from going down this road so many times, the serendipity is always there's, there's it's insane. I mean, you have Richard Pryor actually is is being recorded to play the uh, to play the sheriff. Yeah, but Warner's wasn't going to. Warner's wasn't going to go no. for that. So you wind up with Cleavon Little, which is a, a beautiful. It was my original idea when I wrote the story. Really? Yes. Oh my gosh. The but, first person who read even the treatment was Cleavon Little, whose manager said, we're not interested. Of course, he never saw it. Right, know? right. But you but, wind up with Cleavon Little yeah. and Gene Wilder, and it's perfect. Yeah. But it's so funny to think that then later on, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor would be this big That's movie comedy team. Go yeah. and know, as they say. Yeah. 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 But and, just, and you, oh, they, they said to... I mean, one of the things that scared them um, of many things about Pryor was how that he disappeared 
one time. Well, he would he would show up to write, or sometimes he wouldn't show up to write. <laughs> you know, it was Richie. Um, but he was so funny and so so brilliant. But it was no studio was going to take a, a gamble on him at that point. They you know? they said he was at one point he called from another state, Detroit. Yeah, he said he was in Detroit. That's possible. Yeah, yeah. Was the producer Michael Hertzberg? Mike said, Hertzberg. said, "Where are you, Richard?" And he yeah. said, "I'm in Detroit. I, I followed some girls." <laughs> Norman told us how the how the sort of the room changed. Yeah, yeah. And that writers' room had to be that was a fun room. Yeah, you that said was... you said it was like uh, a Marx Brothers movie at, at at certain points. I said that. Yeah, with with Richard in there. Well, After Richard the, was was and Norman and Mel throwing yeah, things I mean, off. You know, it's you know I always say it's like sort of I'd never worked with anybody. I'd never written a script. And I always say it's like playing tennis, and they say there's three guys warming up, and it's, you know. Right. Lendl and Borg and, and Connors. Why don't you go hit with them and see what happens? Was it competitive, too? You know what? It was just all for one and one for all. It wasn't really people trying to, no, that's no good. It yeah. was just, it's like that game of telephone. When people say, who wrote that one? Some some things, lines I absolutely remember, but they they... You know, when you go around a room, it just gets yeah. trans- transmogrified over and over and over again, and suddenly, ah, that's it. The right, the right one comes out. Yeah, Norman's cagey about it too. He doesn't. He doesn't. He either doesn't remember who wrote what, or he just. It's not really cagey. It's group, like literally group credit. Yeah, it really was. It right. really worked that way. Yeah. And I heard that Pryor would sit across from Gene, uh, would sit across from Mel Brooks. And be like uh, pouring cocaine lines of. That was the first day. Yes. (laughs) My God, that was the icebreaker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a little early. Eleven o'clock is a little early for for cocaine, and we're we're in in the conference room at Warner Brothers, six 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 Fifth Avenue. Generally, he stuck to Cavoisier. He, he didn't do that much coke. Is, is this BS, too, or was Dick Gregory approached by, by Mel at a certain point to see if he was interested in coming on board before so. prior? I, I, found, I, so. I found that in an article. I thought, yeah. it didn't, I thought it didn't ring true. It's interesting. The deeper you go into this research, the more you there's find stuff. There's always a great amount of mythology. There's, some, there's mythology yeah. uh, attached to it. And you guys turned in, what, a 400-page draft? No. Also, no. also bullshit. No, bullshit. Yeah. It was like 150 pages. It okay. was long. Okay. Know? Yeah, but uh, double spaced. It wasn't. It wasn't unwieldy. How did? But you, there were some great bits that we lost along the way. Do you have the original? Uh, oh sure. For, oh god. And you haven't shown anybody, except for yeah, maybe some I mean, writer friends. Is, and I mean, Mel wanted to play a, a guy named, based on Humphrey Bogart. We're gonna have a, a cowpoke named Bogey. Who would only talk about where the strawberries? Now you have four quarts <laughs> of strawberries. Came really three, yeah, just, just, so this came really well. Now there's two pints left. Every time you cut to the. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> in the documentary about Blazing Saddles, there's two scenes with him that were cut. Yeah. Yeah. With Governor Lepetamane, which is also an inside joke. Yes. Yes. And, and when the movie came out, uh, well, they called um, Harvey Corman Hedley Lamar. Hedley Lamar. Yeah. yeah. And she sued. Yeah. 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 Hedy Lamar sued. <laughs> Which and is all well, extra weird fine. because it's a joke. It's fine with us. There's a joke in the movie about her suing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They said uh, this is. 1874. So, so we yeah. could sue her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and what happened with the 
Hedy Lamar. The lawsuit was dismissed <laughs> as a frivolous, <laughs> ridiculous exercise. But didn't uh, Mel Brooks say, oh, pay her already? Did he? In an interview, in the yeah. documentary, the same documentary I think we both yeah. watched, oh, Gil, yeah. he's saying, she's Hedy Lamar. give her some money. Oh, maybe he did. <laughs> <laughs> that cast, and the more you watch it, I mean, there's, you know. Harvey was unbelievable. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. And she, and, and the two and of them. Madeline was extraordinary. The two and of them. And Slim Pickens is uh, stupendous. Every bit part. Every bit yeah. part. And, and uh, uh, Burton, Burton, who you, Bert, who you Bert brought Gilliam. back in yeah. Honeymoon in Vegas. Right. George Firth, David Huddleston, every. That was a uh, wild cast. John Hillerman, every part is so perfect. And everybody has their little star turn. Everybody has great moments. Well, yeah. that's Alex Karras, even. That's what I learned is you give everybody, you know, some choice dish to eat, you know. And I, I, I tried to do that in all my movies after that, you know, yeah. that, that you don't just throw people away. You give them something that, that they can be remembered for in a movie. Well, we're talking about it outside, our obsession with character actors, yeah. our shared obsession. Yeah. And I also in the movie how, like, the climax... They they escape from the studio where Blazing Saddles yes. is and just go all over the break place. Break the break the wall. Yeah, yeah. That's Kovacs. That's a, that. That was the yeah. kind of thing you didn't see in feature films. No, that was really quite something. And that that uh, that I credit Mel for because we had a more conventional ending. Yeah. Uh, and he said this movie needs something more nuts. Yeah. at the end. Yeah, it's wonderful. So this so this movie opens. You guys think the whole time you're writing it, this is a joke between us. Well, Warner Brothers thought it was a joke between them. They thought it was just going to die within minutes <laughs> they did. upon release. Oh, yeah. yeah but you guys shared that. You guys thought, this is for us. Nobody's ever going to see yeah, this. Yeah, but that's the that's the lesson you learn. Yeah. Write for yourself and see what happens. Yeah. And the funny thing is, like, back then, I mean, the bean-eating scene was hysterically funny. Now it seems like you can't make a comedy without fart sounds in them. So it's not funny anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's not bold anymore. And it's no, not, that it's was not authentic. He was nobody, doing a, nobody had ever seen yes. anything like that. Of course. And and it's true that they just recorded guys with their hand under their elbows for the fart. This I don't know. I do yeah. know that Mel said the guy, the sound guys were saying, <laughs> these are too loud. And Mel said, believe me, after the first one, you're not going to hear anything after this. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. It was true. Yeah. It was people going so bananas. That it was just, it was like pantomime. Yeah. But it's also made, but clearly made by guys with a great affection for Westerns. Oh, I totally. Yeah, yeah. It's an homage as, it's, as, as well as a satire. Well, what it really was, was when you're a kid and you go to the movies and you talk back to the screen. Yeah. This was, we did the talking back in the movie, you know? So you're 26 in yeah. the writer's room. I guess you're 26, 27 when the movie yes. opens, yeah. and now you're a screenwriter. Yeah. Now you're now you're a Hollywood screenwriter. Was your dad around to see all this uh, no, he a success? Dead. He was dead by then. I'm he, sorry. The, my, yeah, that was a heartbreak. Sorry. And I remember when I, we went out to L.A. To, to start do a rewrite and do the casting, uh, and I knew how much, what that would have meant to him. I yeah. must have, when I drove onto that lot, I cried. Oh, boy. I'll bet. So now, how do how do we get from uh, from Blazing Saddles to the next project? The next project was a movie I wrote called Rhapsody in Crime, right, which right. was a great which I want to script. read. Oh, Cagney, John Garfield. It was it was all the '30s movies wrapped up in one. It was a concert pianist who was a 
a gangster who was a great concert pianist. It was a prison movie. It was all of those movies. I'm, I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. It was every, your, your tribute to all of them. Every one of them rolled yeah. up to one and right. ended um, with the hero playing the Tchaikovsky piano concerto on the roof of, of Carnegie Hall in a big shootout. And it's sort of like a white heat ending. It's wow. just everything just explodes. Uh, it was great. And Warner Brothers paid a fortune for it. I didn't have a, a real producer for it, so it never, it never happened. Rhapsody in Crime. Rhapsody in Crime. I saw you at Film Forum, and you were saying that that movie today would cost about $600 million. Was, <laughs> <laughs> all, I mean, yeah. anything you wanted, Blazing Saddles would have cost right. a fortune. You right. Just, you know. and, and Mel Brooks has, has said uh, quite a number of times that Blazing Saddles could not be made today. No, there's no chance. So many reasons. For a million, a million, list them alphabetically. Yeah. Starting with the fact that it's an original screenplay. Oh, yeah. That already dooms it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you, you, it's at real locations. Every movie sure. is out of a computer box. So nothing really, you can't relate to it in a real way anymore. You know, actors look like, like cockroaches, like crawling over a mountain. Um it's just not, it, w- it wouldn't happen. People mis- would misunderstand it today. They would misinterpret it. And by the way, I saw it with an audience, and Mel was, was showing it at Radio City yeah. last year. And I thought, I took my wife, and I thought, can, can an audience actually handle this? They still can, right? Still can. It's yeah. fine. Everybody understands. Mostly well, because it, you know already. You, you know, know what it is. Yeah, you know. yeah. But very, very brave filmmaking. So you get a phone call about Rhapsody and Crime that you're not Yeah, the good news was, bad news, the good news, bad news call Bad news is we're, we're not making Rhapsody in Crime. Uh, the good news, we want you to write the sequel to Freebie and the Bean. I said, I'm not sure that's the good news. Tell me again what the good news is. <laughs> Did you know this, Gilbert? <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> I said, well, it's not really a sequel to Freebie and the Bean, but Alan Arkin and Peter Falk want to do a movie together. I said, well, that's interesting. Right. Uh, and it, it, they struck me as, didn't they make a movie? That was my first thought. Right. It seemed like such a natural pairing of, of opposites um, so Alan and I started Alan was the executive producer so we started meeting and discover how we how can we find a movie uh, where they could play to their strengths the strengths being that Al- Peter would drive Alan nuts for two hours that's the only plot I could imagine right because their personalities one is a hysteric and one is a sure a turtle you right know? right um, so I, I at some point I said, how about their in-laws? That's the only way I could think of that they'd be absolutely glued together and they couldn't get out of it. And then it really wrote itself. I mean, I, that that script was like 140 pages right. and, and it just kept going and going. It was because it was, there was no plot. Right. The whole plot was complete. It's a MacGuffin. Yeah. It's the plates. A moving and, target. Engraving plates. And I heard the, it didn't change that much in the making from the no, original I mean, that... I have to say that script was like perfect. That was my 27 of 27 down. That was the script. It just worked. And because it was written for two, it was like fitting two suits. Sure. You know, those guys were so specific. And somebody said that uh, when Arkin first pitched it, his idea was, uh, I want to be in a movie with Peter Falk where he does stuff and I'm annoyed by it. Well, that that was it. (laughs) That's it. That's no other. That's the whole movie. It's also a trailblazer in a way because the buddy comedy wasn't really a thing yet. It, there, there, there weren't the way it became. Yeah, the yeah, way the yeah, way they just yeah, started yeah. cranking them out in the eighties. Yeah, no, it was just it was it was a joy, and, and um, it was one of those things that just everything sort of 
fell together. And also, talk about great other people, Ed Begley. And oh, everybody. A, and Libertini was Libertini. hysterical in the movie. Yeah. Oh, God. And did did you see the Michael Douglas Albert I did. Yeah. Um, and I got the best reviews I ever got in my entire life when that movie came out. <laughs> I ran to Larry David. He said, what do you think? I said, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, <laughs> can't compare, work of genius, you know. Um, and Alan felt the same way. Yeah, I so heard he was getting phone calls. Peter yeah. called him the more, when the reviews came out. They were celebrating, you know. Because <laughs> the whole point of the reviews was, how, how could they transgress on this masterpiece? And even critics who crapped on, the, on our movie was yeah. like, oh, how could they? Right, 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 right. <laughs> no. Tell tell us about writing the dinner scene and how you could have gone on and on. Well, the dinner scene originally was like 40, 35 pages yeah. long. I realized that couldn't be that long. But once you get into that rhythm of somebody bullshitting insanely. So good. In that voice, in that droning, ridiculous voice, I just hated, I hated to stop writing it. Oh, incredible sight. Peasants screaming, chasing these flies down the road, waving plumes. You can imagine the pathetic quality of this, waving these crudely fashioned brooms at these enormous flies as they carry their children off to almost certain death. Oh, that is, that is just the most horrible thing. You sure these are flies you're talking about? Flies? Natives had a name for them. Jose Grecos de Muertos. Oh. Flamenco dancers of death. You took those slides of them that never came out, remember? Well, that's a shame. I really would have liked to have seen those slides. Me too. Yeah, I left them in a jacket that got modernized. I tell you, it broke my heart because those slides would have won me a Pulitzer Prize. The enormous flies flapping slowly away into the sunset. Small brown babies clutched in their beaks. Wow. Beaks. Flies with beaks. Side on those the Tsetse flies. The Tsetse yeah, flies. Yeah, the Tsetse flies carrying it's the funniest babies. thing ever. Jose Greco's in Muertos. <laughs> when I wrote that, I said, God just gave me that line. Jose Greco's de Muertos. Flamenco so, so. dancers of death. <laughs> so is when Arkin says there's red tape in the bush. There's red tape. Well, bush. The word the bush. bush, I don't have to tell you, it's just... Is gold because every time you say it, it's such a ridiculous word. He's so perfect, yeah. and, and he's got almost the beginning of a smirk on his face. Like he looks like he's about to crack up through through through, through well, the whole that's movie. That he is the master. Oh my god! Of playing to this thing that's yeah. a foot and a half from his face. Because I remember so much of it was just Arkin repeating what Falk said. Yes, like saying. Flies? These were flies? Flies with beaks? <laughs> flies with beaks? These are flies you're talking about? <laughs> but I found it comforting, too, as you, and you just said, you just uh, mentioned it, that you didn't understand the story yourself. Cause, uh, there was nothing to understand. <laughs> he's, he's basically a CIA guy. Or is and he's, he? Or is I mean, he? And I went but, through the, when I wrote it, to me, I could have ended the movie with... You know, like like uh, Street Crane Desire, with three guys in right. white outfits putting Alan, putting Peter <laughs> into a wagon and driving him away. That would have been a completely credible ending. <laughs> I've also heard you say that you're, when you're writing, there's, there's a great pleasure in writing in a room by yourself and cracking there yourself is. up. There is. Yeah. And when you came up with, with a dictator with a senior Wences fetish, you must have been. It's just, oh, that's good. Yeah. And you the know. right guy to play it. 
You know what I originally wanted? <laughs> this is this is good. Before Libertini ended the scene, when I saw the Wild Bunch, there was this guy who played General Mapachi. I know who you mean. Vicious guy. I said, "That's my guy." Uh-huh. And Hiller told me that he was in prison for double homicide. <laughs> I guess I was. I guess he would have been good then. So that's when we got to Libertini, who was fantastic. And he had history. He's a second city guy, and yes, Allen was a yes, second absolutely. city. So they must have had they, absolutely. They must have had shared history. And he tried to break Allen. Allen says on the DVD commentary, he kept trying to destroy me. He kept trying to make me laugh. Well, the scene when he's pouring water into his hand. <laughs> beyond, beyond. That funny. was almost impossible for anybody in that room not to break up. And how did the serpentine scene come about? I wrote a scene called Serpentine. I said Serpentine. Peter says Serpentine. Now, what happened after that is is due to Alan's genius oh, in physical comedy because he runs so funny. Yeah. And then that he would run and then run back into danger the same way. That was that was the perversity. Really wonderful. Oh, it, was, it was heaven. Tell, I'm going to make Gilbert tell you a quick story. David Steinberg was directing Gilbert in a in a. Right. Was it a feature? Oh, uh, or in, Mad in, about in you? a TV Mad about you episode of Mad about you. Tell, tell uh, Andrew oh. will enjoy the direction he gave. Well, you. he I was supposed to say something to uh, Riser and then run off, and you know uh, Steinberg says cut. I I want you. Could you run a little more? That's gracefully? a good one. That's a good Steinberg. <laughs> I I need you to run more gracefully. And I said, uh, I don't know, gracefully. And he said, Well, not gracefully, but more faster. <laughs> and I said, I could run a little fast. And he goes, No, no, not really faster, but not so choppy. Not. Um, <laughs> and then there's a long pause. And he just throws his arms in the air and he goes, can you run less Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> and I knew immediately. <laughs> yeah. You have to stand a little straighter. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Alan's, Alan's running in the serpentine is a little Jewish. Oh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> But that came from your life. The whole serp, the serpentine thing. There was a there was an well, origin was a, of, it of was the a, phrase. Yes, it, was a, it was a phrase when we used to play football in college. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine, a hilarious, unfortunate now deceased friend of mine. We'd play three on three football, and we'd huddle. You know, even if it was three people, you huddle. Yeah, and he'd say serpentine out from the huddle. Now there's three people. <laughs> You know, it's one thing you have a little guys going like this, but three Jews going like this. So was, I never forgot this. That serpentine out from a huddle, and that's what the serpentine And it's such a phrase, right. such a ridiculous word. My wife had not seen the in-laws. Shame on her. I showed it to her Saturday night, and she says, oh, that, that's what serpentine means. And she says, there's a show called Gilmore Girls that she loves, yes. and there's a serpentine gag oh, in Gilmore it? Girls, which is an, a, a, an in-laws an in-laws homage. homage. An homage. And there are lines in the movie that have nothing to do with what's going on in the well, movie. Well, that's the be- that's to me, that's the best comedy. <laughs> I've never great. written a joke in my life. That's what's great. funny is when, is that funny? If it's funny in the situation, then it's hysterical. Yeah. yeah. Well, come on, Falk's saying break up some croutons in the soup. Yeah, it, right. It looks Probably, a little greasy. Yeah, yeah. May, I t- may I try it? All of that. The right. Price is Right stuff. Right. It's gold. And and he has a line in a diner like, is this freeze dry? Yes, <laughs> right. very good, <laughs> very good. Very good. Those throwaways, the CIA stuff. Yeah, you know. Yeah, 
And the, the chicken trick is not to get killed. killed. That's the key to yeah. the benefit program. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's talking about a chicken sandwich. Yes. Well, that was its one ad lib. Yeah. That was that was that was an ad lib because they had these great chicken sandwiches. We were shooting in Cuernavaca, and um, and Peter starts talking, telling Alan while they're waiting for action. You know, they made a chicken sandwich and I said, a grande, a grande. And Alan says, "Say that when we go into action. Say that." He said, "What do you mean? Say say it. That's great." And so he and did. I, I remember in the middle of it, Volk goes. Do you take chicken shell? <laughs> <laughs> There's so much good stuff in there. I mean, it has to be uh, gratifying. So many years later, this this thing you came up with in the privacy of your of your oh, it's your home. It's, 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 be, it's beyond gratifying, and and to all of us, it's traveled like, the world. You know, when the movie was named to these Criterion classics, yes. which that what was, an I honor. Mean, oh, it was like it was better. Alan said he called me that morning. He said this is better than an Oscar. It's just. You feel, you know, the seventh seal. Yeah. Wild strawberries. Bergman and, and Bergman. Half, <laughs> and <he lost. laughs> but it's less. And I don't know how many people have told me they saw it the night before their wedding, which is really gratifying. Or it's a movie happy. they remember watching with their father because their father loved it. And they introduced them to it. That, that really, that, that just kills you. That's just so, that's why you do it in the first place. Yeah. We're all trying to cheat death. So that's why we do it in the first place. I have to tell our <laughs> listeners to, if, and if you haven't seen it, shame on you. See it immediately, but 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 also take time to listen to the DVD commentary because there's such gratitude. The four of you are at oh, different was, stages of your life yes, and your career. It was a miracle to all of us yeah. that, that you know you shared this this a sweetness between all yeah, of you. Absolutely, you know. Now that's nice. Then, it's a great you, piece of work. Then you did a sequel. Well, not a sequel, but uh, brought them together. Yeah, that was a disaster. Yeah, well, I had no last act. And you, if, you, if you don't have a last act, you you, you know, you, yeah, it was you have nothing. Kind of a takeoff on strangers on yeah, it a was train. double indemnity. Double indemnity. Double yeah. indemnity yeah. I mean, yeah. And I had a great half hour, and <laughs> it crumbled. I want to ask about So Fine and specifically Please. working with somebody Gilbert worked with and we love on this show, Jack Warden. Oh, yeah. Because we're talking about character actors outside Terrific. and you can't think of a better one. What a guy. Yeah. It's so funny in that movie. <sighs> he's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> he's just, his face. Yeah. You know, Beatty used him all the time because he's just. Sure. Sidney Lumet used him all the time. Nobody does that. He told the greatest, you talk about Lon Chaney. I mean, he, nobody had better showbiz stories than, than Warden. I'll bet. That he did a studio one with Lon Chaney Jr. In which they went on the air and Lon Chaney Jr. was under the, and this was TV, was under the impression there was a dress rehearsal. Oh, I know. Oh, that's a famous one. story. Yeah. 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 Well, when we really do it, I'm going to pick up the chair. The guy, no, no, we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Later, when we really do it, he kept saying, when we really do it. You know? Yeah, that right. was in Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was supposed to destroy the whole laboratory. And and instead, he thought it was a dress rehearsal, <laughs> and he would pick up a chair and place right. it down, and, and pick up another thing and place it. Down. Gilbert has an autograph from uh, Lon Chaney Jr. that he sent him when he was a boy, which is one of his prized really? possessions. Yeah, yeah, he still has I, it. I heard he was sick, and they gave an address, and it's I got great. a little thing of the Wolfman, yeah. postcard of yeah. the Wolfman. No, but, Jack Warden was a, a, a gem. Yeah. But it's such a great guy to have on, just have around, you know. 
Was that James Hong? Was he one of the guys hitting yes. hitting Richard Keel with the palm fronds? In yes. The, uh, well, I, in I the, had James Hong and then the in the oh, by the way, just in the in laws, you know, Billy and Bing, those that, two guys. That is another great, yeah. yeah. The karate well, chop. Look <laughs> 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 on an Arkin's face when he hits him with the karate chop. <laughs> And he keeps showing him just like the, the little the little moments. Like yeah. he keeps showing him what he's reading in Better right. Homes and Gardens. Right. Like he's so interested. What about working with Ennio Morricone on 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 so That was fine? amazing. He was a lovely guy. A fabulous. You did not. Uh, no, you, and we and you, we did that. It was some musician strikes. We had to do all the music in Rome, which wasn't so terrible either. I was yeah. going to say you didn't skimp on the talent. No. Santo Loquasto. No. And, and, and and that was and, Santo's first movie. And more and more really. Yes. Yeah. It's a little like an uh, like an Italian sex comedy, like you a know, it, like a movie. It was an Italian sex comedy, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, that was my <laughs> aim. The music, everything, was, right? Was the, yeah. the doors slamming and the whole. Yeah. 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 So almost like something out of Golden Apples or one of those pictures yes, that Seca used to my, make. That was the aim. Yeah. Very. Astute of you. Well, I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a film nerd. Uh, also, the uh, the last scene borrows or an homage yeah. from, from Night of the Opera. Oh, totally. <laughs> I've borrowed from that a couple of times. Yeah, it's a good place to in borrow. The freshman, I borrowed. From oh, the, with yeah. the Lespari. Oh, and it's so fine. Yes, it's it ends with That's an it, opera. With yeah. An opera. Yeah. yeah, and also with the the, backdro- the backdrop right. yes, flying yes. down, and 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 Warden is riding a uh, a sandbag like Harpo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Steal from the best, or or pay tribute to Absolutely. the best. Yeah. I raised my kids on night at the opera. You know? Let's talk about that because it's interesting. We, we and we've talked to a lot of guests about the, the Marx Brothers. We have Bill Marx is going to come and do a show oh, yeah? in a couple of weeks with us, Harpo's son. But we are we are Paramount purists, Gilbert oh, and I. Yeah, we don't so much care as much for the for the Thalberg. Yeah, the, I, the, well, because the music is so awful. And yeah. I I thought, but night at the opera is hysterical. It's but pro, I it's thought great, night great at the stuff. opera just struck me as the beginning of the end. Well, because the the you know duck soup was a total bomb. Yeah. So they said we got it, you know. Because I don't know, night at the opera, it seems like they're under control, and I didn't want them under control. Well, I did a whole chapter in this. We we're in the money. You did about that very thing. It was called anarcho nihilist laugh riots, and what I did, I traced um, the Marx Brothers. When as of of consequence that uh, Groucho runs a university and then he's a president, yes, and that when that <laughs> when that bombed, then he that's it. He can't have any power anymore. Right. So the next movie, he's a, he's a he's a flea bag opera impresario, and he never had a position of of authority again. Because yeah. I oh, they couldn't I, accept it. Right. What I love with Duck Soup is so another film. Where it doesn't make sense from one scene to the next. In mid, well, like in mid scene, he's prosecuting Chico, and then he defends him, <laughs> just because it's a funny joke. Well, what has two floppy ears and his weighs four hundred pounds? That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. Yeah, that's irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you make the argument in your book. Which I will, again, recommend to our listeners, too, because a lot of our listeners are crazy film books. Well, then they should read We're in the Money immediately. Yeah, We're in the Money, uh, Andrew's book, Depression, America, and its films, which also happens to be, as he said, his P- his PhD uh, dissertation. But you make the argument that the timing, that the historical there's a historical context for why Duck Soup, because it happened one night, which came out the same year, which you 34, which you compare it to, was it, was it, there was a completely different attitude. Well, it was about healing. You yes. know, the early, early before... 
Roosevelt, yeah. you really could have an like explosive comedy in which you really didn't know how things were going to come out. Um, once everybody thought FDR was going to solve everything, then all movies were, the, you know, all classes loved each other. I mean, right. you, had, you really had some class consciousness before 33. Afterward, it was just rich people loving poor people and everybody. You know, that was the, the Capra thing. It's fascinating. Yeah, it really yeah. is. And, and, and yeah, because we like, we like the anarchy of Duck Soup. And I guess Thalberg felt... Too scary. Yeah, and, and too scary. And the pure insanity, it, it makes no sense. They're not trying to defend anything. It's no reason for what they're doing. No, it's anarchistic and... and you called it in the book the most fully orchestrated attack on the state well, to ever is. reach the American screen. <laughs> it is. Which is, I think, one of the reasons I love it so much. <laughs> And now you, Frank, uh, you were telling me, what, Problem Child and what movie? The Freshman. Yeah, when The Freshman came out, it was uh, up, uh, was it Presumed Innocent? Yeah, we, had, we, had, we were in a great spot. Between <laughs> Presumed Innocent, which took everybody over 40, and Problem Child was already under 40, leaving us about 800 people between the ages <laughs> of 19 and 26. Yeah. Well, he'll forgive you. Well, there was, uh, did the problem child did problem child do better than? than oh, it, than, it did great. The first, you know, we had opened originally like ten screens in New York and did unbelievable businesses. Let's 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 grow it. Nah, nah, we're gonna like, twelve hundred theaters, and then we just. But it, you know, thank God for cable and all of that. The movies had a great life since then. Oh, it's great. And again, you, as you mentioned before, another Marx Brothers reference. Yeah. Which Lasbari, did not es- yeah. should not escape me. Yes. You, you, Matthew's passport. Yeah, you threw them in where you could. <laughs> uh, what, where did the idea of the uh, of, of Bert Park singing to the Komodo Dragon? God, another one of these. Just, God, <laughs> presented, inspiration. God presented that to me. <laughs> that must be just like one of it the great, heaven. great days was, of your life. First, he was the great, yeah. <laughs> First of all, just to get, and we, when I told Marlon and Bert, Bert Parks in the movie, he was like, so great. He just, <laughs> he was, Hilarious. He just loved it. Hilarious. And then the guy who, who did the music for us was a guy named Don Was, who later went on yeah, doing all sure. Bonnie Raitt's albums, a great producer. Was not was. Was he the one with Walk the Dinosaur? I yes. think so, yeah. Yeah. Don, Don, was. Up working Don, with Brian and, Don and David Was, was not was. And uh, he was close to Dylan. And he played Bert's Maggie's Farm for Dylan, and Dylan flipped. He thought it was great. <laughs> and I said, now, is there any chance? Oh, my God. My dream really was to get Marlon and Bert Parks in the same shot. That was already <laughs> a fulfillment of a dream, which I did. I said, anything, you think Dylan would, like, sit in on this for, just for a chorus? Then I get the three of them in one shot. But he didn't do it. Yeah. Not many movies have Bert Parks and Maximilian Schell. Uh, oh, Max in them and Bruno Kirby. Yeah. You said you liked Maximilian Schell. I did. Yeah. I got along great with him. But my parents were German. I, I completely understood his sure. perversity. A great actor. Fair and another enough. guy. I don't. Th- I, I think if you went through, down his IMDb page, you wouldn't find a lot of comedies. No, but he was a very. Fu- I mean, unlike Marlon, he genuinely was a funny guy. He was funny. Yeah. Yeah. So what? I mean, Marlon th- liked comedy, but he wasn't really funny. Max was. Max was a devil. He was so a devil. What were, what were the things you noticed about Maximilian Schell? That made you like him so much. Did you work with him? No. <laughs> I would love to see Gilbert uh, Gottfried yeah, and Maximilian Schell. That would have been a, good a, a remake of The Man in the Glass had, Booth had a, with you, had, Gilbert. He had, he had a great, great style. 
um, I had him do these lines, which he, did, he didn't really understand, but he did them so perfectly. He had this, this one very weird locution, which was when, when uh, Matthew and Frank Whaley show up at his, you know, uh, laboratory. Yes, yes, it is a laboratory. <laughs> the kitchen. B, with BD1, <laughs> right. they're raising these animals. And he says, Carmine, meaning the Marlon Brando's character, Carmine said, one boy, he had two. It's a very odd thing to say. Yes. Then he says it two more times. He kept saying, Carmine said, one boy, he had two. The third time he says it like Carmine said, one boy, and he, had, he starts laughing like it's the funniest he ever heard. I really, and it just, it just worked. And uh, Frank Wheeler said, you know, you got to like this guy. He's like a great guy. I, I ran to uh, Max on a plane like 10 years later. He said, what the hell was that? I never knew what I was saying. <laughs> what did great. that mean? I said, That's great. Just, just you did it. It was great. That's great. <laughs> Let he me, was very smooth. He was very good. I also found it interesting, too, that Brando loved Raging Bull, which which came up yeah, in, well, he in loved, my research. He, he loved De Niro as, as the fat Raging Bull. He did. Yeah, he, yeah. he thought... He just loved that. Yeah. Tell me, too, and this is fun, something I found in the research, too, because we t- you were talking about It's a Gift, which is one of your favorite yes. comedies, and you were talking about showing movies to your grandchildren, and you showed your gra- one of your grandchildren City Lights? I showed my, my, I have two grandchildren, one five, one two, so I decided to take a shot at City Lights with my five-year-old, not knowing, you know. And Frizz comes on, he says, they don't talk? <laughs> <laughs> I said, give it a minute. He said, there's no color? I said, give it a minute. And then uh, somebody dumps a bucket of water on Charlie's yeah. head, and he starts screaming. That's and that's great. it. And then the boxing match was yeah, just beyond great. belief. And he was transfixed for an hour and a half. He said, that went by so fast. You know, and the blind girl, he just, which is the greatest ending of any movie of all time. It'll never be topped. I'm, I'm trying to explain to him why I'm blubbering at the end of this movie. Uh Hey, but he just got it. He said this, he just knew there was something, there was something there. You know, that's gratifying. It, I bring oh, it up great. because Gilbert exposed his uh, his children to to black and white movies yes. and classic movies at an early age to Bride of Frankenstein oh, oh, and, yeah. and the Wolfman and yeah. and all the Universal stuff. Well, I did the same with my kids, and it was Night at the Opera, which my younger son would listen to. Like every every morning, we picked up in, in the Berkshires, we would wake up and I'd hear. Stupid scene with the spaghetti. Yes. He'd listen at 7 o'clock in the morning. I'm listening to that. Did you show Max the Marxist skill in comedies? I know he's uh, I know he's this, I, become a student of horror, horror uh, yeah. classics. I mean, I used to quiz him and go, okay, who's Frankenstein? And he'd go, Boris Karloff. And then uh, Dracula. How old is but, he? he? Oh, well, he, now he's nine. But he, this is when he was like one or something. Oh. I quiz him on. You haven't shown him freaks. I oh, no, no, I think no, he, he may have seen bits He's and pieces. He's got to pass puberty before he can t- I mean, I freaks. Think, the first time I saw freaks, I was like hit into my bed, and I was like thirty. You I know? think That's he depression did movie. see it. <laughs> oh my god! He did see it, and he saw someone, and he said they look like they're from freaks. <laughs> 
That that freaks his eyes. Unbelievable. Yeah. Strange. Talk about a movie that could never ever be made. Today. Oh no. my God, no! Talk about a risk. Holy Moses! No. What an amazing. You talk movie. about it in the film. I mean, you talk about all yeah, the films oh, of that period. Stupid. You talk about King I mean, Kong. Todd Browning was really something. Yeah, as a director. Yeah, because with Freaks, that's another one. Even if nothing creepy is happening, oh, it no. feels creepy. Oh no. Yeah, you got a, a, a lot of people running around on their hands. That's yes. not, and you know that's not like CGI. Yeah, no. yeah. We want to ask you about working with a, some great character actors because you talked before about always giving somebody a piece of business. Yeah, yeah. And I was telling uh, uh, Andrew outside that this is the only podcast in the world that's discussing James Gleason, yes, and, <laughs> and Fritz Feld and Lionel Atwill, right, and uh, and uh, uh, Misha Hour. But <laughs> how about Douglas Dumbo? Douglas Dumbo. Oh, yes, yes. Well, he turns up with the that Marx mu- Brothers. He's, oh, he's yeah, in mustache. The, he's, he's in the uh, big store. He's in one of them. Day at the races. He's in the Day at the races, right? And Lewis Calhoun. But but these names: Jack Warden, Seymour Cassell, Paul Benedict, Bruno Kirby, oh, Paul Fred Gwynn. I love Paul Benedict. Yeah, tell I mean, tell us a story about any of them: Pat Morita, Jack John Cleese, Red Buttons. These are great names. They are great names. I I just. Uh, I gravitate to those guys because um, they have no ego, or if they keep them well disguised, and they just they they you pick them because they're so specific, and they do it they they know what to do. I mean, Red Buttons is really talented great. actor and uh, terrific. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't, I terrific. Didn't, yeah, great performance. Oh. small part, but a great performance. Wonderful. It could happen to you. And and I always loved that Fritz Feld invented that thing of popping his mouth. <laughs> Slapping his hand to his mouth and making a popping sound, and he built a career on it. Well, you know, Red Buttons play, was in it happened to you when he played opposite, you know, a contemporary character actor, Richard, Richard Jenkins, Jenkins. Another good one I forgot to mention. Oh, yeah. yes, yeah, yes, also absolutely terrific. great. Really makes you hate him in that part. And so oh, he's, but not, he's great. Not a little, but not a so lot of screen funny. time. And he's also very funny. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. This is a question from a listener. Why can't or why don't studios make films like it could happen to you anymore? Well, they do, but they they don't hire me to direct them, so they're no good. No, they, they don't. Um, romantic comedies fell into a particular hole. Yeah. And I think it's a lot of casting. I mean, they cast the same people in them over and over again. You can't take any kind of chances. And... Uh, you know, it could happen to you. You had very oddball casting. I mean, Bridget and Nick are not your typical sure. Like, romantic. Sure, but it, but it works. But it works because of that fact, because they're not your, you know, and Rosie Perez, they're not your typical triangle. And in addition to loving character actors, we love films about New York. Yes. And that is a film, well, that's, a, that's a Valentine to New York. In New York, and Caleb Deschanel is a genius DP, shot that. Uh, and I don't think there's a more beautiful movie shot in New York than that movie. It's pretty right? to look at. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And a little bit of a departure for you because I think yeah. of you as the absurdist guy no, who's doing w- the Komodo dragon and the and and this is a sentimental No, my my producing partner said I'm going to send you a script. Don't say anything. That's what he always said. <laughs> Just read it. Don't say anything. And I started reading it and I said I I like this. I think it's my affinity for movies of the 40s and things. There was yeah. something about this Jane Anderson was the writer. Yeah, yeah. but it did, but it, everybody was white, so I did. A, I rewrote the movie entirely. I mean, it couldn't be New York Day. Everybody sure, of was course. White. It was an all white movie. Sure, 
but but also it's it's and it's it's could have been made in the in the forties with Fred McMurray and Gene Arthur. It's yeah. a total throwback. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and so sweet. Yeah, You're, I, I mean, I, I really love really making, sentimental. I really love making that movie. And he is, uh, you know, Cage is is uh, Nicky's great. underrated. Oh, he's great. You know that you know that he can do crazy stuff like Moonstruck and Raising Arizona and what you put him through in Honeymoon in Vegas. Yeah. But I I had never seen him play. This guy. That kind of, that I would not Jimmy think of him. Jimmy Stewart. I had one direction for him. More Jimmy or less Jimmy. You know, depending on, on his lines. Yeah. Terrific movie. And and in striptease. Yeah. Tell us about Demi Moore getting in shape and naked and everything. I can't tell you about her getting naked. I mean, she was in great shape. She was a <laughs> maniac about working out. I mean, I wish she'd been less of a maniac, you know, but it, it was it was... She took a huge risk because we couldn't find any, nobody. I wasn't going to do like a TNT version of Striptease. I really loved the book. And I couldn't have people running around with with like two-piece bathing. You have to be true to that, that yeah. book. And I loved Heisen, who loved the movie. He said, that's it. That's, that's, that's what I wrote. Take it or leave it. Uh, and she took a she took a big risk and she got a butt kicked for it. But she was she did it, you know. What was working with Reynolds like, Burt Reynolds? Did you have a positive experience? Huh? (laughs) On good days, he was great. (laughs) We have to ask. I mean, he's like, in a way, he's like in City Lights, he's like the drunken City Lights. He's either hugging you to death or he's, who are you? You know, um, but I had, I I worked well with him. I I had no problem with him. Yeah, yeah. He was a a Meshuggan of the Another great cast. (laughs) What about uh, what about this Peter Boyle scene in uh, in Honeymoon in Vegas? Because it's great. Was he a little bit based on Brando? No. Okay. People always said that, but he, he wasn't. Okay. That was, again, just some perverse thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wanted a, a Hawaiian captain, who a native who was a musical comedy freak. Which is <laughs> just so funny. And the first person we approached <laughs> was Raymond Burr. Oh, tell us about that. We called up Raymond Burr. Because I like that kind of, you know, odd kind of stunt casting. I mean, who expects Raymond Burr to show up in a comedy? <laughs> Nobody. What well, happened? I, we called him. <laughs> obvious within 10 minutes, they had no sense of humor. Whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so we I don't really sing. I said, well, you know, singing is not like crucial here. Great in rear just, window. It's just, it, it was great in rear window. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Peter was fabulous. I love Peter. Here's another one from a listener, Andrew LaPasha. What is Andrew's favorite memory of working with George Burns? Just being in a room with him. He was so, first of all, he was so smart. So funny and so smart. And he was really there. It's like some guys you meet and you meet them and the next day you see them and they say the same thing all over again. You know, it's like they're an animatronic figure from uh, Disney World. Uh He was right there in the moment, whatever you're talking about. And smart Must have had stories. Oh, it's just the, the the comic intelligence. He said the greatest thing. We were talking about Johnny Carson once. He said, uh, when he went to, when the show went to an hour, that was the end of the show for me. That it never it never survived going to an hour. That was just another show. Interesting. He said all the the insanity, all the magic was in an hour and a half because you didn't know, God, they have so much time to fill. What could happen? And that's when the craziness happened. It's a good point. A brilliant point. Yeah. And he was like that about everything. He was so. Did he smart. tell you about some of those vaudeville acts? 
You know about Swain's you know about Swain's rats and cats? We got a book for you. He told me about why he smoked cheap cigars. Why was that? Because he he had this, you know, he he said, Milton Brill smokes $20 cigars. I said, if I smoke the $20 cigar, I have to fuck it first, you know. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I smoke cheap cigars because they never go out. I I can't be lighting a cigar in the middle of a routine. And a cheap cigar... They they burn till they fall out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> That's <a> great point. <laughs> I got one one more question, yeah. Andrew. We get you out of here because I know you got to go someplace. Uh, we all us, have to go someplace. Tell us about the the Casablanca remake, <laughs> and then I'm going to have Gilbert do his Sydney Green Street for oh, you because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you'll appreciate it. Well, I always had a dream to do uh, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is dead with Casablanca which is you do Casablanca from the point of view of Sam, the piano player. So the movie is about him trying to get his ass out of Casablanca before the Nazis get him. And you get, a, you know, Eddie or, or Richie Pryor, somebody play that part. Uh-huh. And it would have to be Warner Brothers because that's like the crown jewel, which is why, of course, it never, mm-hmm. it never happened. But I thought, what a great movie to cast and have, every, have all these legendary things happening, like, in the background. So you get this all-star cast, they each work for like three days. You know, you get Nicholson to play. Yeah. Uh, Bogey, you get Warren and Annette to play, you know, Henry and, and, and Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman. Bergman. You get Brando to play Sidney Greenstreet. You get Wally Shawn to play Peter Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so great. But of course, it was just one of those beautiful dreams that, that never did, happened. Did you write a screenplay? No. Uh, God, no, I'm yeah. not that nuts. Okay. I, I knew we could never get okay. it. Okay. Hap- what happened with Ottoman Empire, which I asked you about oh, before? Oh, a great script. Yeah. It's, you know, locked away somewhere in my vault of, of dreams. What's going to happen to all these trunk scripts? You're going to donate them to a... a... I give them to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will read them. <laughs> You can find them and read them. <laughs> we'll read them with, I will read them with great affection. All right, here's the here's the best Peter Laurie ever heard. Gilbert, want a favor, Andrew? No, it was you who bundled it. You it's your stupid attempt to buy it. Kevin to found out how valuable it was. No wonder we had such an easy time stealing it. You blundering fathead! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can he have the Lori part if you ever absolutely <laughs> <That's fabulous. laughs> that and your David Steinberg are really oh tremendous. he's a great mimic <laughs> really That's you remember really an actor good. John MacGyver of course ah go ahead Gil my favorite according to schedule we will have no slackers in this organization we have a tight ship that we're running here and I am the captain of that ship it's so perverse but absolutely perfect I mean who in the right mind would do a John MacGyver it's so great though Ollie Gilbert <laughs> That's what we do to loosen up the guests. Oh, we had Joel Gray in that that's chair, a classic, and we just kept firing them at him. Yes. It was like, what were you doing, Sydney Green Street, and just like Green. one after the other. Oh my god, <laughs> this was fun. Yeah, thanks. It was fun, fun, fun for me. What, what, what? You want to plug anything? Anything coming up? Are you writing Honeymoon in Vegas, the musical? Is that still Honeymoon being performed? To Vegas, the musical, hopefully, is is opening in London. Uh, 
next year. A good experience for you. Lo- wonderful. Good. I loved it. Yeah. I loved doing it so much. What about the Eisner Project? Is that is? The- it's you know we're we're hat in hand raising money. You know the movies now. It's so perverse. You know you get a dollar fifty from Kuwait. You get seventeen dollars from. Uh, the Rosado Brothers. You know, it's <laughs> Rosado Brothers. So <laughs> Another Godfather I reference. just don't recognize the business. It's like you see a movie, there's like 95 logos before the movie starts. Schmeckle Productions, Schmeckle Brothers Productions. And then finally at some point it says Paramount, but the movie's half over. You have 45 minutes of logos. <laughs> So sick. Yeah. Oh, I told you I saw you at Film Forum, and you were also talking about the death of movie theaters, which is something that we we talk oh, about a lot. There's no movie business that's anymore. It's just heartbreaking. I mean, that's why Spielberg's going bananas about this Netflix thing. And he's right. The movies, the bigger the screens got at home, that movie is, business is f- for fallen. As as, that, as Lily von Stupp would say. Yeah. That's Paddish. something that saddens us. It's Frank very and I. sad, it's particularly like, for yeah. comedy. Yeah, well, you're talking about the in-laws yeah. open wide at the Beekman, and then you yeah. were talking about these 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 great old theaters that yeah. were. I mean, we lost the Ziegfeld. They were even great, but they were theaters. They were theaters. I mean, you sit together and laugh. Yeah, you sit together and laugh, or you sit together and get scared together. Scream. Absolutely. Did you go see Blazing Saddles with an audience when when Mel when Mel trotted it out? Did you did you go and and watch it with a? You mean now? Yeah, recently. We, it was actually about ten years ago. We did it at Radio City Music yeah. Hall. Norman and I did it. Uh huh. You know, three thousand people sitting there, and they went bananas. It's gonna and it's gonna work a hundred years from now it in front of an audience, and because people know it now, it's like you know Rigoletto. They know at some point the guy's gonna <laughs> go sing this. So they see the cowboys sitting around the fire, and they're laughing even before anything happens. Yeah, they know. They just know. Thanks for doing this. We know you're busy. Oh, thank you. We wanted you for my, a long time. My pleasure. Our thanks to Norman Steinberg for making this for making Norman, this possible. Wherever you are, uh, Norman, we love you. Gil, unless you have another impression, ah. unless you want to give him, if you want to give him a little bit of Sidney Green Street, mm, you are a character, sir. I like a man. I like talking to a man who likes to talk. I distrust the clues mouth man. <laughs> <laughs> what do we do with this? It's great. <laughs> How do we market this? <laughs> there must be a way. A man doing John MacGyver impressions. See, that's another thing. They used to be out-and-out impressionists. Oh. Yes. I still remember um, David Fry. Sure, we talk about him all the time. When David Fry did the the, uh, the on-the-waterfront scene in the back of the car as Johnson and Humphrey. It was unbelievable. (laughs) I could have been a contender. I had some money. (laughs) I could have been somebody. Humphrey was so sad. Yeah. And nobody did a better Nixon. He invented yeah, he, he embodied Nixon. it. Yeah. We had Will Jordan here oh, did on you? this show, yeah, and we he, had Rich oh, Little. We have a fondness for all this old show business. The greatest Ed Sullivan. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, and the greatest Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster was Frank Gorshin. Yes, he was very good. And the best Kirk Douglas was, oh, was, yes, was, Frank, yes. was Frank Gorshin. Yeah. This yeah. guy, Caliendo, is a pretty good He's impression. pretty good. He's pretty damn good. He does a lot of sports guys. Yeah, but no John MacGyver. John MacGyver. (laughs) Only one person in the universe. 
Well, you'd be surprised, kids. Are close to John MacGyver impressionists who get together? You got a five-year-old grandson. Crowd. Just post well, to John yeah. MacGyver. A newsletter of John MacGyver. <laughs> the young hip hop crowd. Like John MacGyver. Since you're in the city, come back and play with us sometime, and yes, we'll, we'll just talk been... about old movies. We'll just talk about old character actors and your book, and and we'll go down to the 30s and through all this stuff. Thanks, guys. So, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing <laughs> colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to the only man who witnessed Marlon Brando fucking now Richard cut that Pryor. Out. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the one of the greatest comedy writers and directors, Andrew Bergman. Thank you all. Thanks, Andrew. He wore a shining star. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. He conquered fear and he conquered hate. He turned dark night into day. He made his blazing saddle a torch to light the way. When outlaws rule the West and fear filled the land. Cry went up for a man with guts to take the West in hand. They needed a man who was brave and true, with justice for all as his aim. Then out of the sun rode a man with a gun, and Barton was his name. Yes, Barton was his name. Godfrey's amazing colossal podcast is produced by Dara Godfrey and Frank Santa Padre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 